Best Book Bits podcast brings you Pamela Slim, award-winning business coach to thousands of entrepreneurs around the world, helping them start, sustain, and scale their businesses for more than two decades. Pamela is a former corporate director of training and development at Barclays Global Investors, a speaker and author of three books, Escape from Cubicle Nation, Body of Work, and her new book, The Widest Net. Pamela, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. No worries. Now, um... You, you've done so much over the of your career, uh, decades of work. I've read your bio and your books, fantastic work. So congratulations on that. But for my audience who don't know who you are, take us back to the 18-year-old Pamela. Where did you grow up and what was your first job? <laughs> I love that. Um, so I grew up in San Anselmo, California, which is in the San Francisco Bay Area. For folks familiar with San Francisco, it's across the Golden Gate Bridge. And I grew up actually in the same house for 16 years of my life before I became an exchange student to Switzerland my senior year of high school. My first job, as I frequently tell my kids, is I started working at 12. I, was, I worked at Swenson's Ice Cream Parlor. And I proudly share that I was assistant manager by the age of 14. I don't think I was even legally allowed to work at that point. And I made employee of the month twice. So my kids hear that story very often, but I'm very proud of that. And I learned so much about business in that direct-to-consumer service kind of business. Yeah, beautiful. And um, what did you do uh, when you finished school? When I finished school, my degree was actually in international service and development. So my, my foray into international travel, I met so many folks from around the world in Switzerland. I ended up going to a really small school called World College West that was focused on international development. And so I lived in Mexico my sophomore year, Colombia and Bogota my senior year, and then lived in Brazil when I was training uh, Capoeira, the Afro-Brazilian martial art. So in early days, I really thought of having an international career. As I really got into the field, it didn't start to make much sense that me as this 20-year-old white woman from the United States was like giving advice about economic development in other places. And so I really started to shift and focus a lot more work back at home and then just got on this beautiful journey of training and development at first in corporate and then management consulting and then for the last 15 years in entrepreneur coaching. Yeah, nice. Yeah, you, you've got a, a fantastic career and uh, you've done a lot of work. Tell us how the first book came about, uh, Escape from Cubicle Nation. Why did you write that book and what was the motivation behind it? That really came from the 10 years that I was a management consultant. I started in Silicon Valley in, in 1996. For those old enough to remember, it was a really wonderful, heady time. There was tons of growth. And starting there, I worked with so many different companies that were really growing and scaling. And then I ended up working with companies all across the country and some in Europe. And I would always find, first of all, there are happy employees in corporate. So just to be clear, I'm not one of those, you're only cool and creative if you work for yourself. But there was often a subset of people that I would run into. Sometimes that was the hiring manager that brought me in to do programs to retain employees that would pull me aside and say, like, how did you do it? How did you leave your job to start your business? And over a period of 10 years, when I saw that repeated, I really realized there was something about that particular situation of growing up in a corporate career that made entrepreneurship feel extra scary. And so that's part of what piqued my curiosity. I ended up uh, falling in love with my husband, Daryl, moving here to Arizona uh, in 2003, and I started my blog it was a blog first, Escape from Cubicle Nation, really just trying to address that specific tips and tools for people to leave and start a business. It ended up attracting a book deal from uh, Penguin Random House, um, and the rest is kind of history. I just ended up spending 10 years deep in working with people who were making that corporate transition. Yeah, amazing. Back in the day when blogs were popular and people getting book deals from, from blogs as well. Yeah. I like. I don't even know people. I, I certainly post blogs when I write my newsletter. I cross post to my blog, but it's just such a it's just such a new world because yes, it, back in the day, blogging was really a thing, and we linked to each other's blogs, and it was a really huge part that contributed to building my own business. Yeah, I know a few authors who uh, who started uh, becoming an author through the blogs. Uh, David McGrainy had on the show, not so smart. He had the the blog, and he had a book. Uh, publishers reach out to you and say, hey, you want to put this into a book? Uh, that's fantastic. And then you went on to your second book, I think it was in uh, 2014, uh, called Body of Work. What, what's that one about? 
I, I always say to folks, I'm really an author practitioner. So my ideas for books are driven by the work I'm doing with people. And after doing such deep work with people who were launching into businesses, I found a couple scenarios. One of them was for some people, even where they made a plan, they worked a side hustle, they were diligently working on their business. They realized once they got in there that it was more glamorous to have the idea of entrepreneurship than actually what it meant to be an entrepreneur. And they felt some shame of going back into the workforce, like somehow they had failed, which to me is not a failure whatsoever. The other thing is there was this idea that you can only be cool and creative if you work for yourself, which leaves most people out, including entrepreneurs that end up hiring employees to work for them. So I wanted to find a way of framing how you can create a substantial, significant career that involves what I see all the time, probably you too, is people moving between and among different work modes. Somebody might work for a company, they go out on their own, they might start a nonprofit, they work in a small agency. And what I think we should center is what is that body of work that you're building? And at different stages of your life, how are you figuring out what is the best work mode for building what it is that you want to build? And it really became an alternative for people. So we just remove the shame and the judgment about one perfect work mode. We all work for ourselves anyway, ultimately, right? No matter what. So um, that was a really important thing. I always say body of work was really my love letter to, to the to creation, just that creative process being very deliberate about what you want to create and contribute to the world. Yeah, amazing. It reminds me a little bit about Jesse Itzler where he says, what's your life resume? So start building out your life resume. When you said we all work for ourselves, yeah, at the end of the day, what's your legacy going to be and what is your body of work? So, yeah, it makes complete sense. Uh, Talk to me about 2016, uh, you and your husband co-founded Street Learning Lab. Uh, What is it uh, and what's it all about? Yeah, well, here at the Main Street Learning Lab, we sit right in the middle of Main Street in Mesa, Arizona, and it really was a... I think a conjunction of a couple things. I had done a 23-city tour in 2015, traveling to cities around the United States and and Vancouver and Canada, where I had done book tours before. I called it the Unbook Tour. If you know Scott Stratton from Unmarketing, I always wink to him for that. But basically, I was testing out the model that I have used within my new book, The Widest Net, and I really wanted to explore and experiment with the idea with people who I'd worked with before. It's, It's kind of central to the idea of what I write about, that you really do create product services offerings based on feedback from your customers. So I did that tour and kind of as an aside, starting from the first city, I asked people, how many of you have ever seen a Native American business presenter speaking at a business conference um, on a business topic? Because my husband is Navajo. He's you know First Nation, Native American um, from the Navajo tribe here. And I asked in every single city, in 23 cities, and out of that entire tour, only seven people ever had, and four of them were in Vancouver, Canada. So my husband and I were talking, there are tens of thousands of of, of Native American entrepreneurs. My husband was an entrepreneur for a long time, ran a heavy equipment construction business, so it wasn't the fact that there weren't, they didn't exist, but there really was no visibility. So we thought, you know, from our own perspective, as a way to support our kids, our nieces and nephews, really to be highlighting the leadership that exists, what can we create in our own community? So we created this space here that is As the name says, it really is a learning lab. We have all kinds of different programs that happen. It's all driven by the community. Everything is led by the community. And we have had just amazing engagement over the last five years. Yeah, awesome. I like in your book, you said when when you opened up and people came in, they said, what is this? Is this... um and you're like, no, it's not. Is it this? And you're like, no, it's not. Is it that? No, it's not. You let sort of the community, um, you were asking feedback from the community. What do they want from this particular space and, and open as well? Um, yeah, great idea. Um, before we jump in the book, talk to me a little bit about your family, um, about your husband and your, and your kids and how important they are for your sort of success and, uh, and balancing life. Yeah, they're hugely important to me. So my husband, Daryl, and I will actually celebrate 18 years uh, together on uh, Valentine's Day, which is coming up from the time of this recording. And so I have a bonus son, Jeffrey, who um, is Daryl's first baby, my stepson. I call him my bonus son, who is 36. And then together, my husband and I have Joshua, who's 16, Angie, who's 14. And uh, I feel so lucky in the family department. 
I know quarantine for everybody who experienced that, you know, could be a challenging time, especially if you're within four walls <laughs> with people you don't get along with. We actually found that we really enjoyed being together. I give huge credit to them for supporting me in writing this book because I did write it during quarantine. And for some reason, my brain was just not functioning the same way than it had for other books. It was really hard. And they are just so supportive. They're so fun. And I know, knock on wood, but having two teenagers, we really get along. We talk to each other. We hug each other. There's not sometimes what I hear from other parents. You know, each kid is different. I never take full credit like they are their own beings. But there's just something about the way that we are as a team that is extremely encouraging for me. And I just, you know, love to do adventures with them. We love to travel. And um, they're my heart, my heart and soul. And then we have two two uh, dog babies as well, Rocky, who's a chihuahua, and Silly, who's a little white fluffy dog that was a stray. So they're very important parts of the family as well for any pet lovers yeah. <laughs> listening. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. Um, yeah, you seem like you have a beautiful family. So congratulations on that. I'd um, seen the photos on, um, on social. Um, let's talk about the book. So the book, The Widest Net, uh, when did that come out and what was the motivation of, of writing the book and uh, what is it all about, The Widest Net? So it came out in November of 2021, and the motivation, like the others, was based on so many conversations that I had with literally every client I've ever worked with, everybody who walks in the door at the Main Street Learning Lab, and anybody I've ever talked to who has an idea for a movement, for a business, after they get the idea and really dial it in that, hey, I want to become a consultant or I have this product, the very first question everybody asks is, where are my customers? Like, where are my people? And now, gosh, talking about coming in from the old days of blogging in 2005, where it was before, you know, social media really was, was prevalent, there are so many more ways now that people have tools in order to build their business. And so many people just get completely confused about how do I start? Where do I start? Should I just be marketing everywhere? How do I figure out my ideal client? And so what I wanted to do is really, it actually ended up being a merging of 30 years worth of study, having studied, you know, community development, economic development, more in a strategic way of applying models of the way that we really look at community-based development in a method that would allow people to very specifically and step-by-step step discover where were the perfect places in person and online where they could focus their marketing. I call them watering holes. Um, and so it really is based on, you know, lots of experiments with my clients. I feature a lot of my clients, uh, which who I'm just so proud of. It's been amazing to see the results that they've gotten from the method. And it really was the method that we used here at the Main Street Learning Lab to build community. Yeah, I like how you talk about uh, the book. For, for me, reading the book reminds me of uh, Russell Brunson's Traffic Secrets a little bit. Uh, where is traffic? Where were the people congregating online? And what's the best way for your particular business to reach them as well? So we'll go through the book and we'll, we'll touch on the chapter. So introduction, uh, I like the introduction. You talk about just because somebody stumbles and loses their path doesn't mean they're lost forever. That is an X-Man quote, so um, that's uh, pretty cool. Um, now, you st start out by um, the, the book is based on, you correct, the stories of entrepreneurs and business owners and their struggles as well. So it's actually a real book with real people, and I like how you've crafted and structured the book. So really, really great uh, work on that. You talk about uh, your first um, introduction as a, a client of yours, and what's happened, she's extremely satisfied with the work she, she did for her, but she currently needs additional work. Now, the problem is her pond was all fished out. So I like the analogy of the watering hole and her pond was all fished out. And so many business owners are paralyzed by the process of finding customers because there's so many different ways you can reach them. Now, talk to me about how the book sort of starts and, and how we can progress through that as well in terms of you're a business owner, you're an entrepreneur, you're a little bit stuck, what do you do? What, what's the first step if you want to grow and scale your business? For sure. Yeah. I always like to bring in stories. I think that's how we relate as humans, but also really just to show the reality of what happens when you are in business. Now, being in business for 25 years, there have been so many different chapters. And 
uh, I, I call them the main characters in the story, <laughs> you know, real people who are having real experiences. Carly faced, she's a, a brand consultant that's based in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, her wife is actually from Australia, so there is a, there is a link uh, to your home country. But but it really kind of brings um, brings us back to a stage where, in her case, she was extremely um, successful. Her clients loved her work. She was very talented. You just kind of think, well, work's always going to happen, which is one scenario that happens for people. Until for some people, it just slows down. It can be a variety of reasons. You cannot have really cultivated a lot of different connections. Um, for other people, if they're just starting out, they're overwhelmed with knowing where to start. And so I like to bring people in first, just really understanding and grounding them in what really is behind the mission of your business. Because just as a high level concept, a contrast that I'm creating in the book is what I call empire culture. And, you know, everybody's different. So it's totally cool. If you relate to empire language, you know, that's fine. But a lot of the way we talk about business is just building your own empire, where basically you're just trying to bring everybody to you. There's all that effort and energy of just trying to to wave at people on the internet and get, get them to come, you know, to see you. And there's also the centering of yourself as that sole expert saying, I am the person, I'm the only person who you should work with it, when it comes to growing a business. In my experience, that's not the case. I work with so many different professionals every day who are also working with my clients. And really, to me, we're centering our ideal client, a problem or challenge that they have, which is really what your mission is, is deeply steeped in, right? What's the mission behind your business? What problem are you trying to solve or what aspiration are you trying to help people achieve? And within that, there is this whole ecosystem that surrounds your ideal clients of other people who are on that same mission. And so at first, really is the baseline, the first third of the book is really just looking at the baseline of how we're thinking about our business. We often tend to think in terms of demographics, right? Well, I want to work with women or I want to work with folks in their mid-40s and 50s or 25. The reality is, while demographics can be important, where they're, you know, to your business, were relevant at first, people don't walk around saying, I'm 45 and I need a car, so sell me this kind of car. Like, why do you need a car? Uh, what are the features that are important to you? That's the way that we should really be grounding the business. So that's where it starts. What's the bigger mission that you're on? What are your values? Hugely important when we're thinking about who you want to collaborate and partner with. And then the in the, in the third part of the book is really defining your ideal customers in very specific ways around their problem or challenge. Yeah. And uh, we're going to expand on each of those things, but uh, we'll just circle back really quickly. Um, you touched on what is ecosystem marketing? So what is for those? Yeah. So ecosystem marketing is basically looking at the places in person and online where your ideal customer is already looking for answers to their questions or is getting, you know, getting information. So for example, I work with, with clients who are scaling their businesses. They're often thought leaders. They've developed a strong body of work to quote myself, right? <laughs> they, they are, they're just about capped out where they can't be delivering the direct services themselves. So they're looking to scale their business and usually get some more time freedom and to grow their revenue with those clients they very often are working also with intellectual property attorneys, CPAs, bookkeepers, online business managers, graphic designers, web designers, copywriters. They might belong to an association. They listen to podcasts like maybe yours. They're constantly trying to learn more new things about growing their business. Um, and I have in the book 10 different segments of the ecosystem wheel, right? Some of them might be connected locally with, with working with some local government, you know, kind of support and programs. But basically, people already are working with a whole bunch of other partners. So what ecosystem marketing is, is really looking, instead of you saying, hey, everybody, come over to my business and buy my stuff, you're really trying to discover what is that ecosystem that surrounds your customers and how can you begin to build relationships with them? Because for each person, they're often sitting on a one-to-many wide audience, and just think about it for a minute. You know, for me coming on your podcast, it's the first time we're meeting. I'm sure that folks have no idea who I am. It's the first time, time I'm meeting you. My community doesn't know you yet. And by just the two of us taking this time together, all of a sudden we're exposing each other's communities to a whole bunch of people that would have taken a lot of 
ad revenue, right, to be, you know, or, or, you know, tweets trying to connect with people individually. So it really is this idea that it's our job as, as ecosystem builders and ecosystem marketers to, I call it to create the Justice League. You know, I don't know if you're DC or Marvel, but, you know, just it's like create the, if you were to think of if you had 30 minutes or less to solve the problem that your business is in the, in the business of solving, who would be that Justice League of just the best of the best people that you would call to solve it. And that's really what you want to identify in your ecosystem. And then the referrals are just amazing. Things start to flow and grow. You know, it reminds me again of sort of the Dream 100. Um, you know, who, who, are the, who are the top 100 people that if you got around and knew your name and you could uh, fish in their ponds and in their audience would change everything for you as well. Um, now, I like how you, you, as you said before, you start in the book, the, the first third part is the baseline. And one of the things you talk about is what is defining my mission have to do with getting more customers. So what is it with defining um my mission to get more customers. This is everything of how you can discover other people who are on the mission. So one of the examples that I give is Intuit, which we know makes accounting software and tax software. Their overall mission is to power prosperity. So as we look at something like that, just, okay, big mission, you know, in general, they want more people to have more money everywhere. When we think of what are all the things that would need to happen for communities to truly be prosperous? They probably need banks. They need financial advisors. They might need money mindset work for people who have come from, right, complicated relationships with money in their family. They may need to repair their credit. They need apps to manage their money. They need jobs. So we can, just by answering that question of, of starting with defining the mission, that's where we can begin to identify other ecosystem partners who are also on that mission. And that, to me, is why it's so powerful to not say, I work with men who are 45 years old who live in Australia, right? Because that doesn't really tell me anything at all about what that demographic, you know, who else that demographic is working with. But if I say I work with business owners who want to grow and scale their business, get back time and make more money, I bet right away you could be thinking of, oh, I know this person and that person who is aligned with that mission. Yeah, great. Yeah, and in step two, you talk about sort of identifying your values. Um, you talk about always and never, and there's a great story about uh, Jeff in there. So the story about Jeff is the power of pivoting back to your, to his roots that are aligned with his mission and values. Can you tell us more about uh, this story of Jeff in the book? Yeah, Jeff Goins is a dear friend of mine and is a um, writer, and he's taught a lot of writers, teaches writing. And <clears throat> he, uh, I've known him for a really long time. And he was growing his business according to what he saw his mentors do. He was building a big team. He was really pushing towards seven figures, which is sort of this mythological place sometimes that we, that we go for. And he knew that in that particular model of bringing on a strong team and really investing in the business, that, um, it was, that it would take him a number of years in order to get to the place where he did have more time freedom. As he got a few years into it, he had little kids at home. He said he was actually making pancakes one morning with his kids. And he just realized, like, what I'm doing right now is the exact opposite of what brought me into this business. He loves to write. He loves to really work with people to find their own voice in writing. And he was just doing that, you know, nuance of looking at conversion rates of emails and managing a big team. And so he just really realized that his model that he was choosing to build his business was really not aligned with what his values and his mission was. And in interviewing him from the book, it was not an easy choice. He had to let go of people who he really, you know, admired, who worked with him. He felt in some ways like he might have let down some of his mentors. But ultimately, he got to a place, first of all, where he was much more profitable in his business, um, which really helped. And now he's actually starting a new venture. This is a couple years out where he is ready to scale in a different way, but he's doing it very deliberately in alignment with his values. So it kind of, this harkens a little bit back to body of work as well, where sometimes choices that you make about how you build your business or the business model is also linked with where you are in your life and what's important to you in that phase of life. Yeah, it was a great story and it ties into sort of back to what got you started in the business and what motivated you. And, you know, as you said, there's so many different chapters in the in the life of an entrepreneur and business owner as well. Sometimes you have to take a step back and pivot 
uh, for you. And then from that comes bigger and better things as well. So yeah, thank you for sharing that story. Uh, jumping into chapter three, you talk about describing the customer of your dream. So I'll go through some of the steps and you can expand on it. Uh, I'll give you number one, which is define your ideal customer by problem, challenge, or aspiration. Can you expand on that, describing your dream, your customer of your dreams? This is a method from my my colleague and friend, Susan Beyer from Audience Audit, and she's an attitudinal segmentation specialist. So she's the one that got me completely passionate about her method. Um, <clears throat> she works with brands to try to figure out, you know, why people are buying their products and services. And when you think about it, the, one of the examples we have in the book is Keep, used to be Infusionsoft, which makes CRM software. She did a segmentation survey with them, and you can imagine, right, you think you have business owners who are using CRMs, they all want to grow their business, everybody might kind of be in the same boat. What she discovered through her attitudinal segmentation is there were four distinct categories that were passionate creators, those folks who just love to be in the business and working with people and creating all the time. You had the freedom seekers, people who wanted to be you know, do the four hour work week and just be free, just have money flowing into their bank from passive revenue. You had legacy builders, people who might really be more motivated to create a business they could pass on to their children. Uh, I always forget who the fourth one is, but you can kind of see within those three segments that there's a very different and distinct reason for purchasing. So imagine for you as the marketer, for that company, if your whole promise is you will never have to work, you can be on a beach sipping a margarita and you won't have to do any work with clients. For the passionate creators, they're like, well, that sounds awful. I love my work. I love to be constantly creating, you know, and vice versa. So this idea of really talking to your customer segments based on the problem or challenge that they solve is a way to be much more effective in your marketing. And also where it, it helps. I know I when I used to introduce myself back in the Escape from Cubicle Nation days, people would say, what do you do? And I'd say, I work with corporate employees who are tired of working there and want to leave and start a business. And it was just the easiest thing. Either they would say, oh my gosh, that's me, or that's my husband, or that's my neighbor. I, I wasn't like tripping over saying, well, I'm a business coach and I work with people who are 45 to 55 years old who make $180,000 a year. That doesn't mean anything, yet that's the way we're often trained to think about our customer. Yeah, exactly right. And the more you sort of get clear about who your, who your dream customer is and, and the niche and niche that you're that you want to work in, things start happening as well because uh, clarity is the beginning of uh, a lot of great successful things. Uh, jumping into sort of uh, chapter four, you talk about the offer they can't refuse, but I want to talk to you about what is cohort-based courses and why are they so powerful? I use the main character in this story was uh, Maven and particularly Wes Ko, who's a dear friend of mine who built um, Seth Godin's Alt-MBA program. Cohort-based courses are a specific way that you can design an online learning experience that really leverages the knowledge and wisdom of people who are going through the group program. Um, I mean, we often say, you know, online courses are the place where people's money goes to die. <laughs> the, the, the rates are as much as we can get excited as creators to generate revenue from online courses. The statistics say that about 6% of people actually finish them, which as a professional training and development person just hurts my heart because what we know is not happening is people are not making a change and solving their problem. They're just investing in a program. I think we've all had that dopamine hit where we're like, I bought the program, I feel better. <laughs> but if you don't actually use it and implement it, it doesn't make a difference. So Maven is a really dynamic startup. It's co-founded by one of the co-founders of Udemy. Uh, and a former you know, coder from Google. They have a super dynamic way that they teach. It's very interactive. It's very driven on experience between the cohort. And I use it as an example, and I've actually been just experiencing it live with them as I've gone through their cohort program to launch my first project with them, that um, it, it just is a very different kind of learning experience, and it just develops a lot more um, a lot more, you know, integration and learning and application, and they're constantly innovating. It's very much living the, the lean startup method where you might say, hey, this feature doesn't work, and 10 minutes later, it's fixed. It's that very Silicon Valley, let's launch it, get feedback, and make changes as we go, which for some people I work with who are used to being in a highly structured corporate environment, who get very nervous, might take six months to launch their first web page, it's a very refreshing kind of model. 
Yeah, it's nice. I, I like the idea of cohort-based courses. Now, jumping into the offer that they can't refuse, uh, give me some tips. So you talk about sort of the four parts of building an offer. Um, number one is to find the transformational journey. But uh, what are some of the things that sort of preventing uh, customers from solving their problems or I think there's a few things. So first, I always think about work that we do, especially as service providers. If you're a coach, consultant, lawyer, you know, somebody working on the human side of business, um, people are going through some kind of transformation. And we need to define where are they starting from, where do they need to get to, and at first, what are the steps that they need to take in order to completely solve that problem? Going back again to just the heart of what I do every day, I can help give people a business strategy, a path for the things they need to work on. But when it comes to fully solving the problem, they often also need to work with an accountant to set up Profit First, which I'm a big evangelist of Mike Michalowicz's work, right? At Profit First, they might need to launch a website, work with somebody else. So you want to really think of what are all the things that people need to do to get through that experience, including often mental shifts, mindset shifts. So much of what people struggle with in business is the way that they're thinking about it. So at first, where you have your own business and you're just looking at, okay, I'm interested in helping people to make this transformation and what are all the things they need to do from all those steps, you need to decide what do I actually want to create? What is my specific intervention? And then what might be other kinds of services that I would recommend? Or in the case, what I do a lot, who are other people I could partner with so that once I'm done with certain strategy, I can pass them off to my colleague as an IP attorney, you know, and continue working. That approach can stop entrepreneurs from doing the everything in the kitchen sink approach where you think, if I want my, my customers to be successful and I am a business coach, it means I'm going to be up at two in the morning reviewing every single bit of their web copy to make sure that that gets done. And it's often where people go wrong is they're not zeroed in on what they can really deliver the best. Yeah, really nice. And thank you for explaining that. Uh, I like in the book how you talk about, you know, engineer your own exceptional customers, customer experience and, and why is that so important? So just expand a little bit on that and why it's so important of engineering or reverse engineering the customer experience uh, that you want to provide. Yeah, I talked a lot with my dear friend, Greg Hartle, who I quote a lot in the book. He has a great question, which is just to always ask yourself, your team and your customers, what bothers you? There's something where you notice people are like, gosh, every time I call, I'm on hold for this amount of time, or your support never responds in a timely manner, or I need to click through four different times and four different screens in order to actually set up an appointment with you. And when you begin to do some of that engineering where you're, you're really thinking about the experience from the customer side, um, especially we, we, we often do a little bit more when we're trying to lure somebody <laughs> right into our business and woo them a little bit. We can put more care and attention in our email sequences and everything. What happens for some customers is once they actually decide to sign up and work with you, that the onboarding experience, the experience of actually working with you as a client is not as smooth and elegant, which we know how that feels. It's sometimes people feel a little bit, you know, catfish, like, wait a minute, I thought I was being, you know, carefully cultivated and, and, and uh, wooed, and all of a sudden, I can't reach you, or, you know, it's really awkward working with you. So, you really need to think about it from the customer perspective in the entire journey they have to getting to know you, working with you, and then offboarding, what is that experience? And, and really, it's this, ma this matter of putting in a process in your business where you're constantly looking to improve automate what you can, but also have the human touch in, in critical parts. Yeah, I like how you said, um, ask what's bothering you. So get feedback. Feedback is really what's going to take you to the next level and improve what you're doing at the moment. Um, now, jumping into Chapter 5, you talk about the watering holes where they gather, but you mentioned something early on in the conversation, which was called Empire Worship. What is Empire Worship? Yeah, it's it's the... It is this certain belief in business, and, and I see it a lot where um, I'll just talk again from the customer perspective. Part of what I've seen over so many years of being in business, like having the advantage of being both on stage but also backstage with other speakers, <laughs> is I'm always 
curious how it is that people talk about the experience they have with their customers. And sometimes, you know, I can remember certain cases of, you know, coming back and overhearing like, I did it, I crushed it, you know, I closed 50% of the audience and, you know, like selling them something. And there was always something in me that was like, that's kind of weird because what was their experience? And, and people sometimes even share that kind of information on, uh, on social media. And I'm always thinking from the perspective of what if I was somebody who is in the audience who probably is paid handsomely to attend a conference? I don't really want to be this just transactional, you know, transaction in the speaker's history where they're just talking about the success that they have in their own business. It's part of what I see very often that the metric that people use, they get confused thinking that the mission of their business is to live a life of freedom, joy, and abundance. And that's their mission. No, that's that's your personal business owner mission. And that's awesome. Like, more power to you. I love to have a great life. I want that for all of my clients. That is very different than the mission your business is in, which is to solve the problems of hopefully your beloved customers. If you're treating your customers in a derogatory way, if you look at them as numbers, as just conversions and transactions, people start to feel it. And that's where you have no loyalty. If you trip up, which we all do, people are going to be like, see ya, right? As soon as somebody cuter, smarter, you know, better comes along, they're just going to leave you right away. And so it's, it's that kind of view that everything is about building your own personal empire and not centering the customer, which to me is like business 101. Yeah, I, I like how you've unpacked that. And just to add on that, I think there's two types. It's a very thin, a, a very thin line between being transactional and transformational. And people can feel that as well. So we know there's times in business where we have to be transactional to keep the wheels going or the flywheel. And most of the time, we want to work from our heart, which is transformational. Uh, so yeah, there is a, a very thin line about that. Uh, I want to segue into a little story you talk about in the book, and it's probably going to lead on to our next question, which is, you know, the ecosystem wheel. Um, and how did Brene Brown uh, use the ecosystem wheel to her advantage? So can you just jam on that a little bit and how she used her TED Talk into then becoming one of the, the world's uh, great thought leaders in her particular space of shame, guilt, and vulnerability. Yeah, I think Renee's such an amazing example, and I was lucky enough to have her um, blurb my book for Body of Work, so it was really funny because she was saying how when she read it and she saw how all her different experience like ended up making sense when she thought about it in her Body of Work, looking at the way that she's applied this method, and by the way, she did all this without reading my book <laughs> because the book wasn't written yet, so it's just an example example of, of an ecosystem approach. But as you look at who her customers are, who she has worked with, first of all, in a core audience of folks who might be certified in her programs, you have people like social workers, therapists, teachers, coaches, um, consultants who are part of her audience to utilize her tools. For her customer base, she has ranges for everything from the U.S. Army, the CIA, Disney, NFL sports teams here in the U.S., the Seattle Seahawks. There's so many different people she's worked with. And as an example, she's really centered a core message that everybody can have this sense of shame and vulnerability. It's a normal human emotion, but also she codifies ways that we can really develop courage um, and a wholehearted way of being, right, in her words. And it's just so interesting to me to see how she does navigate between and among so many different environments. But it's an example because she's not saying, I only work with folks in corporate or I only work with folks in the military military or only work with folks in social justice. She's able to cover many, many different verticals with her work. Now, it helps to have yeah, a, a massively viral TED Talk and to be one of the world's best speakers. Let's let's not, you know, <laughs> let's not oh, get and, that wrong. And book deal after book deal. So she's currently unavailable for 2023. I spoke to her team and <laughs> very busy lady. Um, jumping into sort of the next chapter, and I know we, we could probably run out of shorter time soon, so we're not going to go through the whole book. For more audience listening out there, definitely go out and, and purchase Pamela's book, especially this one, The Widest Net. If you're a business owner, entrepreneur, or just an employee wanting to escape your cubicle, this is the book for you. Um, it's an amazing book. But jumping into step number six, you talk about the seeds you plant. And I like how you said slowing down the pace of connection. Can you talk a little bit about slowing down the pace of connection? 
Yeah. So if, if you look at it, as we said, having the foundation of really knowing like who you're working with and why you're on that mission, you, you figure out who's in the ecosystem, who should I be connecting with? And then when you get to the point of actually human connection, I'm a big fan of the work in just behavior change from James Clear and Atomic Habits and BJ Fogg for Tiny Habits, where the way we actually make relationships is in small little ways over time. So, you know, you and I are just meeting for the first time. We get to know each other a little bit through this interaction. Maybe we connect on LinkedIn. It would be probably weird if the very first time we meet, I said, hey, do you want to do a huge collaboration and partner on something? And you'd probably be like, I don't even know you. Let me take the time to get to know you. The process in natural human connection is to get each other, get to know each other a little bit over time. So this is where you really want to work in what I call tiny marketing actions, where you're slowly and strategically over time building connections. And you do, of course, identify some places where you know you have a really great return or you have certain marketing activities that you do consistently. Yeah, and I like how you talk about, you know, support first, uh, then build and talk about those hundred little uh, conversations that you have. And, and another little story you said in the book, you were, you used to train, at, you, know, you get catching a train and you ended up sitting on a, a bench, train bench with a, a colleague and just those little conversations that you find out more about someone that you normally wouldn't have that setting to spend hours with uh, someone you first met and the rapport and friendship that you've built from that, that as was well. Jeff, so thank you that, for- that was Jeff going. So we talked about in the first chapter and that's why yeah. we became such good friends <laughs> spending that time seen, together and, and seeding does pay off and you don't know you are seeding because we're, we're human at the end of the day and we're having human connections and, and normal human relationships, talking to people as their people, not for economic reasons, not for transformation, but just be, being a person. And then the question becomes, you know, what do you do and how can I help? And, you know, spreading your message through through word of mouth as well. Um, so, yeah, great stuff on that. Uh, step number seven, you talk about the beacon of light. Um, what makes a great beacon and, and what is a beacon of light? For sure. And we can take a little more time, right, to get through all the steps if you want so people can have them all. Don't leave them hanging. But they're, um, a beacon is where we, I've talked before about basically identifying these watering holes, so places where other people have taken the time to already build a community. So that's obviously very effective. You show up, you get to meet people with little effort. Of course, there's a place for you within the ecosystem to really be sharing your point of view and your thought leadership. And that's what I call your beacon. So it's a primary communication vehicle. I generally suggest that it is something you own, like an email newsletter list or a podcast, or in some cases, if you can control, you know, video, even if it's distributed through something like YouTube. But um, it is a place where you can centralize your thought leadership. And if people want to find out what you're about and what you do and what you believe and your approach to business, that would be the place that you send them. <clears throat> this is to balance. I realize for many people, you might have a primary beacon where you put a lot of you know energy and attention. Um, I imagine you, like many podcasters, probably take this what we've done together, you can break up some of the video and share it. You can, you know, create a blog post from it. There's ways you can be efficient in distributing content through other channels. But you really do want to have a place that you can share your own thought leadership. And it's it's really efficient and effective and a great way for people to get to know you and build a relationship. Personally, I am a big fan of podcasts. I feel like that's taken the place of what blogs used to be. Yeah, absolutely. And the beautiful thing about podcasts, what this is, we're just two people having a conversation, picture and catching. I'm asking you a question, you're answering it, you're being authentic, you don't know what I'm about to ask you. So it's very genuine. And there's, there's not a lot of fluff. I listened to yesterday the Joe Rogan uh, podcast with Jordan Peterson, and it was four hours. And to be honest with you, I wish I got that four hours back because it was just a complete ramble of bamble. But people listen and tune in because it is just a case of a, a waffle of people waffling and, and you know, um, you know, talking about ideas that they might not, it's not like a book where it's been edited, there's multiple drafts, the words are all written and it makes sense. We're a podcast, it, people are speaking from the heart, not just the head as well. So I, I do think you're right. And being authentic online is the key. I think there's no, there's no bullshit these days. I mean, there's so much bullshit on Instagram and Facebook and, you know, f- f- images that being on a podcast, it's very raw, it's vulnerable, it's being authentic as well, and you have no idea who's listening. So there's a 
it's a it's a great uh, time to be alive with uh, podcasting. Um, yeah, we'll touch on the last steps before we wrap up. So I know your your time is precious. So I don't want to take too much time. Step number eight, you talk about sort of the sales you make. So at the end of building all of this, at the end of the book is obviously talk about the sales you make, and selling is the next natural step. A lot of people make a distinction and it can feel awkward when they, especially if they're newer in entrepreneurship or if they are very relational, where it can feel transactional or awkward to get into sales. And to me, when you have strategically focused on working with somebody over a long period of time, you really know what they're trying to accomplish. You understand the value of what that solution means to them. You need to set up a clear and effective process in which to facilitate those conversations. And I think where a lot of people freeze up is they're not anticipating what the sales process actually is. And so they feel stuck and awkward where all of a sudden they just have to say, you know, do you want to buy my stuff and send a proposal and hope somebody answers back versus if you're just really consistent, I'm a big believer in process where you've really followed steps. You understand where somebody might going, be going, what they need to make a sales decision. Then you can create those kinds of assets, you know, that help somebody to make a good decision. And to me, I, I uh, quote Skip Miller, who was a longtime client who taught me a lot about selling. And he would always say, yeses are great. Nos are great. Maybes will kill you. But the best thing that you want to do is to just help people to make a decision, yes or no, in as expeditious a way possible. And leave always as friends. I always tell prospective clients, you know, no worries if, if it's not if I'm not the right fit or it's not the right time. All I want is the best for you. But let's make a decision so that I can set aside the time to do the work if it is a fit. Yeah, absolutely. And I like how you talk about in the book, removing obstacles to selling uh, effectively as well. And I think you're right. A lot of people do get a bit awkward if they haven't prepared for the sales process. And especially business, you do want to reverse engineer as yes, add as much value at the front as possible, become friends, get referrals, you know, give more 51% than they give 49. But at the end of the day, if you're selling a if you put value on yourself, your product or your services, there has to be an element of uh, what you charge as well. So yeah, really, really like that. And jumping into step number nine and segueing into that, once you've built a, a relationship, you want to form some partnerships. So talk to us a little bit about the partnerships that you form. Partnerships are a key part of the ecosystem model. And I mean that in the broad sense. So not just where you might do an actual legal joint venture partnership with somebody, but just partnering that you can do with, with different folks. I do a lot of work with brands that serve the small business market. So things like Keep or GoDaddy, Progressive Insurance, you know, people who are selling into the small business market can be a partner with me. And again, it goes to this concept of they already have in some cases, millions of customers and where I can connect, provide something of value that they need, which would be business advice that their customers can connect with, it becomes a very effective thing. So you really want to be identifying how you can work with partners. It is the most squirrely, gnarly, hard, emotional, heartbreaking, and oftentimes wonderful thing you can imagine. Like it is a human relationship. And if you've had friendships, you've had romantic relationships, you've been a parent, right? That all of you know, if you're dealing with human relationships, that can be hard. So once again, I believe a lot in having structure, having communication, um, you know, take your time to have good agreements and always have an exit clause, you know, that's there. Um, I've, I've had today, actually, my, one of my, my dear friends, I call him my work husband, Darren, flew in from Atlanta. We worked together for five years as management consultants, and we've always maintained a friendship, even when we went different directions in business. Now we're kind of coming back to working together together. And to me, it's just an exemplary of it's not a transaction. It's not just that we'll be friends when we're doing collaboration. We allow each other to grow and change. And then when there's a new opportunity, we can come back together and work together. And that's been the case with just about every partner I've ever worked with. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I like how you expand on that too. I've had some um, partnership breakdowns last year and getting into new partnerships with people too. And I like how you basically made it down. Date first, do your due diligence, explore your, your drivers. You're both going to have different drivers. Define your partnership goals too. Test the waters. Everyone signs something, yes. so we have to sign something. Yes. Uh, build continuous communication and evaluating investing in the relationship regularly as well. But yeah, as I said, definitely friendship first. If there was friendship first, yes. If there's no friendship first and it's just business, then obviously do your due 
do your due diligence. But yeah, there's no such thing as uh, an evergreen uh, contract. So, you know, businesses always fall apart. Doesn't matter if they're 100 years, 10 years or one year, something is going to give. So just make sure you're doing the right things. And then last, uh, capping off the book, you talk about the ecosystem uh, you protect. Talk about protecting your ecosystem. Really, when you look at implementing this method, and, you know, I did f- follow Carly, uh, my main character, from the introduction all the way through. In the couple of years we worked together, she ended up totally recovering in her business. And then she got a $100,000 grant from the Canadian government, you know, created all an amazing method. She ran into the situation that many folks do. It's it's the good problem to have, but you go from not having a lot of prospects at all to just having far too many. And that's where you need to start to um, operationalize, automate, hire a team, begin to think strategically about how you want to grow the business. And so I give some advice there about ways that you can really work this method into your overall business process. You do always want to be, you know, connecting, sharing, bringing, you know, fresh folks into your environment, but um, you also often need to be expanding your team. And I know that's what I'm doing this year. I know it's what a lot of my clients are doing. And you can't just constantly be doing everything yourself once you get to a certain stage of growth. I mean, you can, but I don't recommend it. <laughs> or you can just decide to really narrow the scope and just work with a feasible number of people that give you the kind of lifestyle and revenue that you need. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I like how you did start with the story of Carly at start and, and finish with the end as well. And it's a, a well-written and researched book. So congratulations. It's a fantastic book. Where can uh, my uh, readers and audience um, listen to this book and, and purchase the book? You can find it anywhere books are sold. So Amazon, if you go there, I do have an audiobook, uh, ebook, and the hardcover. And um, you can find me at PamelaSlim.com. There's a, a couple, for those folks who like worksheets, I am a coach, so I often have exercises. And that's where on uh, PamelaSlim.com forward slash the widest net, no space, you can just download, no email trade necessary, a workbook that has all the exercises in the book and also an ecosystem uh, mapping tool as well. Awesome, awesome. And one last question before we wrap up. If you were to host a dinner party with uh, three people, dead or alive, past or present, who would they be, where would you take them, and what would you serve them? Three people. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's funny because I was just thinking about this. Next time I go to California where I'm from, I'm probably going to have Guy Kawasaki, who I mentioned in the book, the uh, the chief evangelist for Canva, uh, Nancy Duarte, who's my good friend who runs Duarte um, Agency in Silicon Valley, and Bob Sutton, who's a professor at Stanford, who wrote The No Asshole Rule and a bunch of really great books. I love them. I love their particular combination. Of course, there's many people in my life. John Legend is always top of my list because I love John Legend, his music and his work. But I would probably take them to some good California like sandwich salad place and just enjoy the conversation about people who are working on interesting high-level problems. But also all three of them love their families love and adore their spouses and really love, you know, their family life. So I'm, I'm looking forward to maybe actually having that conversation next time I go back home to California. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Uh, Pamela, thanks for being a great guest on the Best Book Beats podcast. And yeah, to my audience, go out, follow Pamela, uh, buy her books, read her books, implement the knowledge in those books as well. Um, yeah, so thank you for your time and uh, look forward to uh, many more books in the future and uh, more stuff from yourself. Thanks so much for having me. No worries at all. Have a great day and I'll speak to you soon.